0: Greetings students, this is Professor Totten, and welcome to the History of the American People to 1877. Today's lecture is entitled Native American Societies to 1490. Please follow along on the PowerPoint as I speak and turn to the first slide, The Great Ice Age. Before we begin, I want to introduce you to our course mantra, De Omnibus Debutatum. Say it with me, De Omnibus Debutatum. It is Latin for doubt everything or be suspicious of everything, because I want you to not just accept what someone says as truth. This course will teach you how to look at the evidence yourself and make an informed opinion, which is how we should conduct ourselves in all things. Now, this course is the history of the American people to 1877. So where do you think it should start? The colonial age? The American Revolution? No. We are going back to the beginning, because you cannot understand the events of contact in the Columbian Exchange without understanding the anthropology, archaeology, and the peopling of North and South America. The Great Ice Age began roughly 2.5 million years ago and ended roughly 11,700 years ago. This was a worldwide climactic event which profoundly shaped world geography and biological communities. One result of the Ice Age was the creation of the Bering Land Bridge, a strip of ice and land that ran from modern-day Russia to modern-day Alaska. This bridge allowed the peopling of North and South America, as well as the diversification of animal and plant life. The end of the Ice Age, as a result of climate change, opened new areas to settlement, plant and animal growth for human consumption, thereby increasing human communities, But it also cut off parts of the world from each other, leading to biological and technological isolation. Please advance to the next slide entitled Human Migration. To populate the Americas, humans traveled by coastal or ice free land routes between 60,000 to 14,000 years ago. There was no single group, but rather many diverse groups of Indo Europeans from the Siberian region. These groups operated in hunter-gatherer societies, meaning humans who crossed were probably hunters chasing big animals like mammoths and woolly rhinos. These groups spoke thousands of different languages, which led to a large variety of native societies in the Western Hemisphere. Over the millennia, they reached South America about 14,000 years ago and grew to a total population of at least 100,000 people In North America alone. As they lived in the Americas, these groups developed agriculture around 9,000 years ago. However, the absence of livestock limits farming as it prevents the presence of certain fertilizers, labor, and other factors that allow for intensive agriculture and corresponding sedentary lifestyles. There are numerous sites across the Americas that illustrate these early societies particularly at Folsom and Clovis, New Mexico, which you can go and look up online. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Pre-Columbian Native Societies. There were many diverse native societies before European contact. These societies varied in their locations, their languages, their economies, their religion, their customs, and their warfare styles. What are some stereotypes or preconceptions you have about Native Americans? What images or visions pop into your head when you think of them? Some might imagine a skulking war of ambush, or a Native society that is close to the earth and does not waste. Maybe you think of small villages, raiding, horse warriors. In fact, we find that many of these images are not that accurate in this era, let us first turn to large sedentary societies in Mesoamerica that rival the great European cities of the 1490s. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Mesoamerican Civilizations. One example of a great Mesoamerican civilization was the Maya that arose in modern-day Mexico. Between 300 to 900 CE, cities of pyramids, palaces, and temples surrounded by peasant villages were built throughout the region. These cities held large populations even by Old World standards. To feed their large populations, these natives grew beans, maize, and squash, called the Three Sisters. The Three Sisters gave Mesoamericans a healthier diet than many Europeans in the same era. The Mayans also used cocoa beans as coinage to facilitate trade across the region. Due to the fertility and richness of the Maya, they had complex trade relationships with their neighbors and constructed ceremonial center buildings as well as prominent urban areas that attracted more than just the elite. These were built on terraces to trap silt which was carried through the river system to sustain soil fertility. The Mayans, unlike other native groups, had written languages and astronomy developed. Over the course of 600 years, the Maya built eight ceremonial centers with pyramids, palaces, and temples. Tikal was the most famous, and it was their major political center and home to the Temple of the Giant Jaguar, which was a step pyramid over 154 feet tall, a masterful architectural achievement. The Maya had an average population of about 5,000 people, making it larger than any other population center in the hemisphere. In order to have a society this sophisticated, a hierarchy was required to mobilize labor and interact with the gods and interpret their signs. Kings and ruling families dominated, as well as a large caste of priests. Like Europe, these were hereditary nobles who commanded retinues for the king you also had a Maya merchant class, as well as professional classes of architects, sculptors, and other skilled positions. In order to understand the gods and as well as to plant their crops, astronomy and mathematics were highly sophisticated. The Maya understood the movement of the heavenly bodies. They were able to plot planetary movements and eclipses, which made them more advanced than Europeans who were oppressing scientists for questioning Christian interpretations of the stars. They managed to calculate the solar year to 365.242 days, which is 17 seconds shorter than the modern figure. The Maya calendar was a bit more different and operated in meaningful cycles. The solar year was 365 days. The ritual year had 264 days for daily affairs and, 20 months with 13 days apiece, and a 52-year period for everything to return to the starting point. So some may ask, why did the Maya calendar end in 2012? Did anyone see that bad movie, 2012? It was garbage. Well, basically, the Maya were lazy like us. They wrote the calendar up to that point and figured they'd just finish it up later, but never got the chance. So I suppose the lesson is... Finish your homework, or else in a few thousand years, people will think the world will end. Maya warfare and society were unique to other parts of North and South America, and would be followed later on by the Aztecs. See, like the Old World, Central America was beset with endemic warfare. Many other peoples would conquer or destroy an enemy and capture or try to control their ceremonial centers. But not, not the Mayans. They did not wish to kill their enemy, but to capture them. Why would they do this? Well, one, the prestige of capturing a prisoner. Second, slaves to do the dirty work of your society. But most importantly, was the acquisition of captives for the blood sacrifice. Basically, ritualistic torture. Blood was seen as the key to the rising of the sun every day. The sun bathed the earth in warmth, and made their crops grow, and without it, disaster would strike. So, enemies captured by the Mayans in battle would be pampered for days before being led to the top of the temple, where the high priest would plunge an obsidian dagger into their chest, rip out their beating heart, and throw it into a fiery crucible to appease the gods. Though the fate of the Mayans is still debated, we believe it could have come from invasion. Civil war, internal dissension, the failure of flood control, disease, really who knows. But the point is that the humans left the cities and the forest reclaimed them. The next largest Mesoamerican civilization was the Aztecs. The Aztecs originally came from the American Southwest, but moved into central Mexico as a result of warfare and climactic shifts. By the early 16th century, there were at least 5 million Aztecs, and some estimate as many as 20 million. These people built cities and farmed vast fields of beans, maize, and squash to support their impressive civilization. Living on the outskirts of their empire were subject peoples whom the Aztecs forced to work and pay tribute, including human sacrifice. When the Aztecs first came to the region, the king married a great princess of a nearby tribe, and when the wedding was set to occur, the princess's father was horrified to find that she had been skinned alive and with a jaguar warrior dancing with her skin draped over him. And that's a bad way to start any marriage. The largest Aztec city and capital was Tenochtitlan. This city was built on islands in a large lake for security, with long causeways connecting them to the surrounding countryside. The Aztecs brought fresh water into the city via stone aqueducts illustrating their use of advanced irrigation methods. With a population of 200,000 people, it was by far the largest city in the Americas at the time, and by comparison, the largest city in Spain at the same time was Seville with a population of 70,000 people. Tenochtitlan was so impressive that in 1519, when the Spanish invaded one soldier said, quote, These great towns and pyramids and buildings arising from the water, all made of stone, seemed like an enchanted vision from the tale of Amidus. Indeed, some of our soldiers asked whether or not it was all a dream. End quote. The last Mesoamerican civilization you should know are the Inca. The Inca built an empire stretching 1,000 miles across the Andes Mountains. Perched atop this mountain chain, they developed a unique agricultural and irrigational system that fed their populations in a less than hospitable region. One of their most famous urban citadels, Machu Picchu, is perched atop the mountain over 7,900 feet tall. The point is that all of these societies have impressive urban, agricultural, and irrigation systems that rival European techniques. So rather than backward natives we see sophisticated civilizations. Please advance to the next slide, entitled The Mississippians. The Mississippian people were organized into numerous chiefdoms that stretched from the Midwest down to modern-day Louisiana and across the Southeast. Their largest political and ceremonial center was at Cahokia, located along the Mississippi River east of modern-day St. Louis. This city developed between 900 and 1100 A.D., and it covered about six square miles, with a population of at least 10,000 people and perhaps 40,000 at its largest point. This means it was the largest city in North America. Archaeologists have found 100 earthen burial and temple mounds, suggesting a sophisticated religious, political, social, and economic system. The largest of these is Monk's Mound, which stands 110 feet tall and is 16 acres at its base. This most likely served as a wooden temple on top that housed the chief and his family along with their servants. Surrounding the chief's residence were hundreds of houses for commoners, and for protection, the city was surrounded by a stockade with watchtowers suggesting Complex diplomatic relations and warfare. Outside of the stockade was a circle of posts, what archaeologists call Woodhenge, similar to Stonehenge in England. This most likely served as a calendar to determine equinoxes and solstices, because in agricultural societies, chiefs and priests earned power through predicting the seasons, thus enabling better harvests to support their people. Despite being the largest native settlement north of Mexico, it was abandoned by the middle of the 13th century. Why is that? Overhunting, deforestation, disease? Well, there is substantial evidence that the Mississippian tribes had such a high population and practiced such an intense form of agriculture that they inflicted heavy damage on the environment, which in turn drove off wildlife. Thus, When a hundred year drought affected the region, the culture could not cope with the new stress and subsequently collapsed or dispersed. In the end, the descendants of the Mississippian peoples were later devastated by the Spanish conquistador Hernando de Soto, whose marauding expedition from 1539 to 1543 further depopulated this area until Europeans and their descendants moved in in the mid 19th century. Please advance to the next slide entitled The Natives of the Northeast. Another major civilization in North America were the Iroquois, though that is the name given to them by other tribes and Europeans, which translates to black snakes. The Iroquois actually called themselves the Hondasane, and they lived in the modern day eastern United States, in upstate New York, and in Pennsylvania. These groups had numerous individual tribal affiliations that later included at least five nations, which you will hear more about as the semester progresses. Early in the 16th century, the nations formed the Great League of Peace and Power. They were fierce warriors and indifferent hunters, which would later affect their relationship with Europeans after contact. Another series of tribes we will soon encounter are the Algonquin-speaking peoples. They are not all related, and not all speaking the same language, but the various dialects and colloquial that range from Canada to Virginia. They practiced seasonal mobility, and their chiefs ruled through kinship ties, tributary relationships, and hunting and war parties. They were superior hunters, which later made them great trading partners to some Europeans. Please advance to the next slide entitled Land and Property. We are going to speak a bit about the Iroquois and the Algonquin speakers who dominate the North American coasts prior to contact. While these native groups were quite diverse, they had a few things in common. They believed that you could claim or use land, but they did not believe that you could own it as a commodity. A commodity is a piece of property with sole ownership by one person that can be bought and sold in exchange for some form of capital. So Europeans believe that you can buy land and pass it down to your descendants. That it is yours by right and title under property law. Natives do not see land this way. They believe it is for communal use, not individual ownership. Natives believe that you could use land even if someone else owned or claimed it. So they sometimes granted land claims to multiple groups of Europeans... And for this, they were given the pejorative term of Indian giver. This difference on the conception of land ownership will create numerous conflicts between natives and European descendants. The historian William Cronin once said, The difference between Indians and Europeans was not that one had property and the other had none. Rather, it was that they loved property differently. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Native Religion. Another common aspect of many Indian tribes was their religion. These tribes subscribe to forms of animism, a belief that objects in the natural world are filled with supernatural power. Indians practiced their religion through advanced ceremonies that sought to harness the spiritual power and infuse their people with its strengths, hence the reverence for the natural world. To do this, Indians had a class of priests or shamans, Who conducted these ceremonies, healed the sick, and performed other roles in society? While there was a supernatural and natural distinction, just like in European and African societies, there was also some overlap, with calamities being seen as a result of spiritual imbalance. Many of these societies were also polytheistic, with many spirits serving various roles. Native religion was also highly adaptive. Natives had no problem incorporating Jesus Christ into their pantheon of gods, but Europeans were horrified by this, and thus called natives heathens, or ones who have no religion. But as you can see, natives do have their own religion. It is just different than monotheistic Christianity. These differences over religion will produce numerous conflicts and misunderstandings between Europeans and natives. Please advance to the next slide, entitled, Gender. Natives do not always view gender relations or gender norms the same way between different tribes. But we can certainly say that natives held some key differences from Europeans. So first, what are gender norms? This is the accepted social, economic, political, or military roles that each gender is allowed to perform. So some ignorant people will say that women should stay home, cook, clean, and be mothers. Others say that men need to be tough, men don't cry, boys like blue, and girls like pink. Obviously, there are many more examples. But the point is that these aren't natural. These are constructs. This is how society tells you to act based on their older traditions. So natives and Europeans will have different conceptions of these gender norms. An example of this is the fact that Europeans believe in patrilineal societies, meaning that all property rights flow from the father to the son, and that you derive your heritage from the father's side. In practice, you have your father's name, you marry someone, and have them leave their family and move into your father's home or village. But natives are not strictly patrilineal societies. They could also be matrilineal, like the Iroquois, Matrilineal means that men, upon entering adulthood, in their own form of marriage, would move in or relocate to the location of the female's family rather than the male's. Property, or at least the way that natives understood it, could be passed down the female line, so as we will see, Indian understandings of property were far different from that of Europeans. All Indians believed that women carried certain spiritual or mystic powers. In targeting them in war either brought you their power into your tribe, or deprived the enemy tribe of that power. Europeans will find this conflicts with their avowed prescription on targeting women of war, but they did that as well. Women also held different work roles than men. Women could farm and take on other domestic duties While the men hunted or trained for war, Europeans will confuse this as lazy Indians who exploit their women despite Europeans' own patriarchal exploitation. This does not mean that the genders were equal, just that they understood that they had different roles in society. Lastly, while forms of companionship like marriage occurred, they were not as stratified or religiously enforced as European marriages. Indeed, they were forms of same-sex companionship, and individuals could also inhabit what was called the third gender, or had neutral gender identities that were well-known to the tribe. The point is that these differing conceptions of gender produce conflicts between Europeans and natives. Please advance to the next slide entitled, Warfare. Now again, there is diversity among Indian groups, but there are many commonalities. First, war was highly ritualistic and spiritual, like Europeans. Indians had various prayers, ceremonies, or expressions pertaining to the coming of conflict or battle. But native war goals were quite different from Europeans. Primarily, natives fought mourning wars, which were raids to acquire captives and replenish their own population. Europeans mistook this for indiscriminate assaults, but these were never meant to be completely destructive. They were just deadly enough to gain some honor for the men by killing some warriors and taking women and children in order to initiate them into your tribe. Native tribes could work together to raid a mutual enemy, but this was not like a European nation-state because each village remained autonomous. So in practice, it worked out more like a mutual non-aggression pact. However, natives did compete for land and resources, and they also fought to avenge kinship ties or protect their honor like Europeans, Africans, and Asians. Wars could also be punitive, sought as a last result against an intractable enemy. Now, in film and TV, how are Native Americans depicted as fighting? right you see the skulking way of war or the ambush. But interestingly, prior to European contact, Indians practiced similar linear battle formations as much of humanity did. Linear battle means lines of men charging at one another and fighting it out hand to hand. But this only changed from the hard lessons of European firepower. Natives quickly realized the futility of such engagements and went to guerrilla warfare, a form of non-linear hit-and-run tactics that sought to harass the enemy, wear them down, and to disperse in the face of direct assaults. Lastly, very few Indians were accustomed to the absolute carnage and totality of pre-modern warfare that Europeans subjected them to. It would take many years for Indians to learn and adapt to European warfare, but they never were able to make the leap to indiscriminate slaughter that the Europeans practiced. Again, differences in warfare styles will create misunderstandings and conflicts between Europeans and natives, particularly about the targeting of women and children in mourning wars for inclusion in the tribe. Please advance to the next slide entitled Diplomacy. Native Diplomacy had similarities and differences to Europeans. Native diplomacy centered on the tradition of gift-giving, a political, social, economic, and spiritually significant act that helped initiate trade and good relations. You could not have any meeting or conduct any business without first exchanging gifts. Gifts signified your goodwill, but were also displays of power, A big gift required a larger one in return, or else you humiliated that tribe. Gift-giving will be used by natives to play different Europeans off of one another, as they vied for favor of these powerful tribes. Indians also held different views of trade than Europeans. For Europeans, while a country may be diplomatic enemies, if you were at peace, you could trade. If they did not trade, you could still be at peace. Natives found the reverse, if you traded you were friends, if you did not trade you were enemies, thus war and peace and trade and war. Trade could be conducted over long distances, and conquistador helmets from the Spanish conquest of Central and South America have been found among the Sioux of the Plains and further east as well. Additionally, Rocky Mountain Obsidian and Great Lakes Copper has been found in the coastal regions. Trade will take on an especially significant role after European contact, when access to European steel tools, weapons, and firearms will mean a life and death struggle with Indian enemies. In this vein, it is easy to see how aiding an enemy against you could be seen as an act of war, punishable by destructive raids. In turn, this created numerous misunderstandings that resulted in conflict. But for a while, Natives utilize trade and gift-giving to strengthen themselves against rivals. But what will happen when a European group leaves the area, and now you only have one nation to deal with? This will create a great deal of issues for native societies, as we will see going forward. That is all I have for you for today. I hope you are all staying safe and making smart decisions. Thank you very much, and have a wonderful day. I'll see you next time.